Well, good morning, gentlemen. As you know, we're plodding our way through the book of Genesis, and each week we stand up here and, and like, um, we're building a framework of a house. I want to remind you every week of kind of where we've been and where we're going. Genesis is simple to outline, and it's broken up into two big parts. You've got four events and then four people. Those four events are creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. And then those four people we refer to as the patriarchs, the fathers, of you will, if you will, of the faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and as you know from studying this week, Joseph. Joseph, um, we're looking at chapters 42 and following here this week. That's where we've spent most of our time. And as you know, looking at the life of Joseph, there's some ups and downs in his life. Specifically, uh, toward the latter end of his life, we start to see some of the ups. We start to see how some of the pieces are put together. In chapter 42, we see that the irony of the, of, uh, the fact that Joseph, who's risen to power, now is approached by his brothers who betrayed him in search of food. In chapter 43, um, Jacob gives instructions for these sons to return back to Egypt and to, unbeknownst to them, to go before their brother who's risen in power. Joseph tests them in 44, and then in 45, it's revealed to them that the very one that they've come to looking for food is their brother. And that the dreams of which Joseph had as a boy of a day in which his brothers would actually bow before him have all come true. And then in 46, we see that um, Joseph and his father are reunited. Joseph's life story, if you will, these ups and downs, the bigger picture can be illustrated like this. You've got Joseph who goes from a position of privilege where he's his father's favorite boy. He's the one who is given the the technicolor dream coat, right? He's the one who's favored by his dad and his brothers resent him for it. And so they throw him in a pit and leave him for dead. And then they go, you know what? Let's not just let him die. Let's profit off of him. And so they scheme against Joseph and they make some money. And they uh, go to their father and say that Joseph is, is dead and go to elaborate scheming. So all along, Jacob believes his favorite son is dead. And then you go to the fact that the, Joseph is sold into the hands of slavery and finds himself in Egypt. And now he's in Potiphar's house. And it really is the surprising turn of events that the brothers left for dead now ends up in this position of of privilege and he's in Potiphar's house. But then things turn once again for Joseph, just when he thought, man, you know, this has turned out well for me. He's falsely accused of something he didn't do. And he finds himself now in a prison and forgotten But then, as you know, this dreamer whom God speaks to and through once again is exalted into a position of privilege. And now he is the governor, if you will, in Egypt, second in command. And now he is only second to Pharaoh, who is the most powerful man in the world, who is reigning over the greatest nation of the world in Egypt. And now he's in this palace. And we see this incredible turn of events. It's easy for us to read the story of Joseph, isn't it? And just, we go through it so quickly, and we can't appreciate the tension often 
of what it must have been like to be in Joseph's shoes. See, you know how the story ends. And so it's easy to just go, oh, well, everything works out. But one of the things that you need to do if you're going to really understand how to read your Bible is you've got to appreciate the tension. And you've got to put yourself in the shoes of the, of the story, of the people in the story. I want you to imagine for a second if you're Joseph. I want you to imagine for a second if you have such clarity as a kid that God has spoken to you and promised you that one day in this, through this strange dream and course of events, that your brothers are going to come before you and you somehow are going to lead them. But then you find yourself betrayed by your brothers, never thinking you're going to see your dad or speak to him again. You think they're going to leave you for dead. What would you think of God at that moment? What would you conclude about God's faithfulness? How would you describe your faith? All of a sudden, though, you're you're picked up out of the pit, and you go, "Whoa, wait a minute! Maybe they had a change of heart." And you hear your your brothers, your brothers, now conspire that you know what? You're better off not dead to them, but they could profit off of you. And so now you're sold into slavery to a place you have no idea where you're going. What would you conclude about God at that moment? See, you don't know how the story's going to end, do you? If you're Joseph, you don't know how the story's going to end. You're on your way to a place you know nothing about. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what's going to happen. Maybe... Maybe as things turn out and you're in Potiphar's house, you start to, your faith is revived once more. But then you're falsely accused of something. Now what do you conclude about God? You're in prison in a foreign land, separated from your family, betrayed by your brothers, thinking you'll never see your dad again. Is this when you punt? Is this when you go, you know, I grew up in church. I've read about God's faithfulness, but that must be true for somebody else. God must not be good. God must not be sovereign. What are you going to conclude about God if you're Joseph? Again, you don't know how the story is going to end. What if it's Saturday, the day after Good Friday, and Jesus, your Messiah, the one you invested in, the one you've believed, what if your Messiah is dead? Are you going to despair? Are you going to run? What are you going to conclude about God? You don't know Sunday's coming. I mean, he spoke of the resurrection, but it's really hard to believe the one who turned the water into wine and raised the dead, you watched him suffer and he's dead and everybody's scattered. And even the one amongst you who you counted as a brother betrayed him. And you're sitting there scratching your head going, hey, where's God? What about God's faithfulness? 
Joseph, don't you think he thought a time or two, where's God? Where's God? His life was like this. But we don't get an indication that his faith went like this. We don't see that. You see, there's uh, a great lesson in Joseph's life about the providence of God, isn't there? The providence of God. You know, there's uh, missing pieces to this puzzle in Joseph's life of which he just doesn't know at this time how God's going to fit all these pieces together to create this picture. And there's missing pieces to the puzzle in your life, right? I mean, I just want you to stop and I want you to think about the times where you've asked the Lord, hey, what are you doing? Your word tells me you're good. Your word tells me you're sovereign. Your word tells me you work all things together for my good, but I don't get it. What are the missing pieces to the puzzle in your life right now? You know, for some of us, it might be the loss of a job, out of work. It might be financial stress. It might be broken relationships. It might be a marriage that we just never thought we were going to be at this point in the one in which you vowed to love forever. God, where are you in this? It may be financial stress. It may be conflict. It may be chronic health. The loss of a loved one. God, what are you doing? I don't understand. I don't understand. When uh, I was a young boy and I was in elementary school, I'll never forget I was out at a friend's house and being told by his parents, hey, you need to run, you need to run home. Um, it, it, apparently, your home is on fire. And I remember going home and seeing the fire trucks outside of my house and being devastated as everything we had was gone. It's all gone. And when you're a little kid, and you see everything that you have is gone and your home is destroyed, it's devastating. I remember learning later on, I remember learning about my first brush with death and my grandfather died. I remember when my aunt was killed by a drunk driver. I remember not too long ago being told my son was diagnosed with cancer at four years old. I'm watching my father-in-law right now love his wife faithfully even though she's battling dementia in ways in which she's just not the same person. What do you do with that? It's a faithful, godly, sweet gal on our staff right now who just lost her baby when she was only weeks away, days away from delivery. What do you do with that? If you're Joseph and you're in the pit, what are you going to conclude about God? If you're betrayed by your brothers, betrayed or falsely accused and you're in a prison, where are you going to go? You're going to punt? And see, that, that's the dilemma. That's the challenge that faces all of us, right? When with these broken pieces to the puzzle. And we don't know how God is putting all the pieces together. But Joseph continued to live by faith. You've built puzzles before. 
Some of them now are, you know, they're, uh, you have to have a degree to build them. I don't know if you've built puzzles in a while, but some of them now have like two sides. And so literally thousands of pieces. Some of them, they, you even build pictures, but they don't give you the front of the box anymore. And it's like, hey, just put it together. And that's a little bit where we are right now. We have a few pieces of a puzzle, but we just don't know the picture that God's painting and how it's all going to fit together. And so in the gaps, in the spaces, we now are challenged, are we going to trust God? And when I read the story of Joseph, I'm reminded of God's providential hand. It's a story about God's providence. Here's a definition of providence. There is a benevolent or good and purposeful ordering of all events of history. You believe that? That nothing happens by chance. It's a bold statement, isn't it? Though not always perceptible to human understanding, there are gaps and missing pieces, it seems, to the puzzle. There is a divine or cosmic plan to the universe a reason for everything. It's the doctrine of providence. That God is good and purposeful and is working all things according to his will. To state it another way, a popular verse that you've heard is Romans eight twenty eight, right? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Easy to say, easy to recite, sometimes really hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, and we're moving right now, guys, just from the Bible study answers to the reality of life when what you're experiencing seems to contradict what you know to be true right here. You ever been there before? Hey, God, I can't make sense of the puzzle when a four-year-old is diagnosed with cancer. I can't make sense of the puzzle when a sweet, godly woman who served you for years has literally lost her mind. I don't understand the loss of a child in the womb days before birth. What do I do with those missing pieces of the puzzle? How do I make sense of that? See, the doctrine of, of providence tells us that God is always good and he's sovereign and he's working a a plan. He's got the whole picture in mind. That on Saturday, the day after Jesus was dead, God was not surprised. God was not panicked. When Joseph was in the pit, when he was in the prison, God did not sit up from his throne and go, whoa, what just happened? But God's sovereign and he's on his throne. And he's in control and he's good. Isn't it good to know that God's never taken by surprise? Think about that. God's never taken by surprise. You may be taken by surprise. But God's never taken by surprise. Your theology matters, gang. What you believe about God matters. And as you've heard me say before, everyone in here, in fact, everyone is a theologian. You're just a biblical theologian, a good theologian, or you're a bad theologian. But every decision you make, how you spend your money, how you treat other people, 
how you love your wife, lead your kids, what motivates you, those are all theological decisions. See, theology is not just for the guy who's in a, smoking a pipe, stuck away in some room, never sees daylight, right? We're all theologians. What you think include about and conclude about God and how you respond every day tells us a lot about your theology. Whether you think about God and his word every day or it's the furthest thing from your mind. There are other beliefs, right? There's pantheism, which is opposed to, the, to uh, providence. This whole idea that God is in everything, but not sovereign over the world. He's absorbed into the world. There's this idea of deism, which cuts God off from the world. He's a blind watchmaker. There's people who look at the world and the missing puzzle pieces, and they conclude, oh, well, there may be a God, but he doesn't really care. He's sovereign. He created the world. He wound it up like a, like a watch, and he's just letting it run, but he never intervenes. That's deism. There's this idea of dualism that, that divides control of the world between God and another power. Somehow that God has an equal, and he's not sovereign over, and there is a chance he just may not win. It's like Star Wars, if you will. The dark side, the good side, but the good side is not sovereign. There's chance, which just denies the controlling power to be rational. There's fate, denies the controlling power to be benevolent. But I want you to look at Joseph's faith and his understanding of the doctrine of providence. Did you see this when you read this this week? This is amazing. After all that Joseph had been through and he's reunited with his brothers, what does he say? This is remarkable. Read this. Look at this. In Genesis 45, and now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. These are the brothers who betrayed him and left him for dead. And now he looks at them and he goes, oh, oh, wait a minute. Don't be angry. I'm not angry with you because you sold me here. For who sent me before you to preserve life? God. That's amazing, isn't it? Through the wickedness and the hands of his brothers, Joseph is starting to see how the puzzle pieces are fit together and how there just may be a plan behind all this chaos. It didn't make sense to me then. But when I see it now, I see what God was doing. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Seven years, gang, of famine. Think financial crisis, think Great Depression, think people starving. And God sent me before you to preserve you, for you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here. He says it again. But God, and he has made a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You see, looking back, we see that God exalted Joseph to be a great leader in Egypt. We see that God saved Joseph's family from famine. God grew and protected a new nation, the nation of Israel, within the borders of the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt, like a little baby in the womb, growing under the protection of a sovereign state, the world's superpower at the time. And God preserved the line of promise from Abraham 
Just as he promised back in Genesis 12 and 15, the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, blessing. And God was going to use Joseph, who was instrumental in fulfilling that promise. Even through the ups and downs in his life, Joseph is able to look back now in hindsight, like we are able to see and go, whoa, look at that. Look at how God took all those missing pieces to this puzzle and has so orchestrated it that now I see the complete picture. God had a plan. God was providential. God's good. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's not taken by surprise. He's not sleeping. There's still pieces to the puzzle, gang, that I, I can't put together. I can't fill in the gaps for you. Some things that I realize that, that I'm not meant to understand. But the doctrine of providence, it comforts us in times of trouble. When you look at Joseph's life, I hope that your faith is strengthened and you're encouraged. The doctrine of providence challenges us to look beyond our circumstances and live by faith. I see God's faithfulness through Joseph's life. I see God's faithfulness that Sunday eventually came. And those disciples who were scared and they were running at the greatest injustice, the greatest tragedy, the greatest evil that ever was, and God somehow took that and flipped it. And there was resurrection, and there was Sunday, and there was new life. But you remember what Jesus said? Even Jesus, in the garden, in his time of testing, he said, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, May your will be done. And some of us, gang, we're sitting there like Joseph, like Jesus, with those missing pieces, and we've got a choice. We've got a choice as to how we're going to respond and what we're going to conclude about God. And what I want to challenge and encourage you with today and remind you of today is the story of Joseph, which is the story of Jesus. God's got a 100% track record of faithfulness. He's always good, and he's always sovereign. He's always kind. The doctrine of providence compels us to surrender our lives to the will of God because he's in control, and he sees the complete picture even when we don't. And in those gaps, he asks us to trust him, and we live by faith, not a blind faith, it's not a blind faith. It's a very rational faith. Because we have a track record of God's faithfulness. And we start to see how the pieces can fit together. I want to read to you a quote that is one of my favorite. John Stott wrote long ago. He said this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectively before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. 
But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorns, thorn pricks, mouth dry, and intolerably thirst, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our suffering becomes manageable in light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark. The cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. You see, Christ, the, the mystery, the miracle of the incarnation, is God sent his son to experience our pain and to bear our penalty of sin on the cross so that we could have new life. The cross fills in all the gaps, gang. The cross reminds us that even though sometimes it feels like Saturday, that Sunday's coming. And even though you may not be able to make sense of all the missing pieces, don't despair. Because we've got a great hope. A great hope. Joseph was able at the end of his life to look back and see how all the pieces fit. And you may not be able to on this side of heaven. But there will be a day. There will be a day when you will be able to see the complete picture. Don't despair. Don't punt. And for your friends or your family right now who have quit, encourage them. Remind them of God's goodness. Tell them of Joseph's life. Remind them of the cross. That God's good. And that he's sovereign. And he sees the whole picture. You're going to trust him? Here are the questions you discuss in your group. And that's looking back, how has the Lord filled in some of the missing pieces, puzzle pieces in your life? If you had any opportunities where you can look back now and go, now I get it. What are the missing puzzle pieces in your life that you're having a difficult time trusting God with right now? Do you believe God sees the bigger picture and is able to work all things together for your good and his glory? Why or why not? Think about that question. What lessons can we learn from Joseph's example for the next time our faith is challenged? Man, my my heart, gang... uh, Uh, it is stirred for many of you who just see church as just, man, I just come, I kind of check a box, we stand, we sing, we just go through the motions. And I just want to say to you, man, I just want to say to you, God is inviting you into a vibrant relationship with him, to know him, the one true God, to walk with him, to represent him. And to be the the prophet in your spheres of influence to speak truth and all the missing pieces of the puzzle and go, there's hope and there's life. And you can trust him. You can trust him. 
I just want to say to a church that is asleep in our country, in our world, and just go, man, we serve a great God and King. I want to remind them of stealing from C.S. Lewis that Aslan is on the move. Don't despair. Don't despair. Trust him. Trust him with cancer. Trust him with financial crisis. You don't have to like it. But don't conclude that God's not good and that he's not for you. Look at Joseph. Look at Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you, Father, that you are good. I want to thank you, Lord, that you're sovereign. I pray, Lord, that we would not just be numb to the truth of your word, but we would live in light of the hope that we have in Jesus. That you'd wrestle us from our, wrestle us from our slumber. That, Lord, we'd walk with uh, just a newness of life about us today. That, Lord, just as Paul says, we'd be a fragrant aroma amongst our coworkers, our friends, and our family. There'd be something that sets us apart, and it's the hope of Christ that we have, that we'd be willing to share it with others. That when others look at us, they would go, man, what is it about our joy, our hope, our peace? And we can say, we may not understand the troubles of this life, but we know in whom we should trust. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.